Welcome to Real Estate Investing in the Real World Podcast. I am your host, Phil Pustiovsky. Today's episode, three ways to turn a house into a cash-flowing machine. I've already released this on my YouTube channel, which is number one for real estate investing, and people went absolutely crazy. They loved it. I've had several different comments that say, basically, Phil, this is the greatest training you've ever provided, and Phil, you provide the best training, so that's saying a lot. So this is going to be a winner. You're absolutely going to love it. First, we're going to talk about single-family homes. Highest and best use is not as a rental property. And that's partly because of the fact that it was designed as an owner-occupant. But also, we talk about why single-family homes can be such a problem as a rental investment property. And then what we're going to do is share with you three ways to keep it a single-family, but through creativity, turn it into a cash-flowing machine. This is the kind of episode that you can use this wisdom for the rest of your investing life. First, let's talk about highest and best use. That's a phrase to describe what a property was intended to be or what was it intended to be used for. And that is for a single family home as a primary residence, as a place for people to live. And because of that, because it's a single unit occupant uh, property, as a rental property that causes an issue. Because, for example, if someone doesn't pay their rent, then all of a sudden you have complete vacancy and you still have your bills, you have your taxes, you have your insurance, you have your maintenance, you may have management fees. And those things are still being, of course, your potentially your mortgage, those are still being charged to you whether or not the tenant's paying you. Furthermore, there's a lot of uh, Landlord-Tenant Act rules that give that tenant so much power to stay in that property while you as the landlord are just losing tons of money. So the first problem with the single family home has to do with it's a single unit occupancy. Second thing, and this is a big one, it has low cap rates. Capitalization rates, that's a commercial real estate term that refers to how the, the property's price compares to how much money it brings in. I'll use some quick terms for you. Numbers, a 10 cap, 10% capitalization rate. That or above is what most individual investors are looking for when they're looking for deals. And so a lot of single-family homes don't pull a 10-cap. They might not even pull a 5-cap. I'm not going to go through on this podcast all of the ways in which this is calculated, but you can head over to my website, freedommentor.com, and check out this article on my blog, and that's where I show you the breakdown of the calculation. So with low-cap rates, single-occupancy, single-family homes, not typically designed to be a great cash flowing machine. Now, what some people have done to solve this problem is they have changed the design of the property. Maybe they add on something that becomes somewhat like a duplex. Maybe you just do a huge add-on. Or maybe what some people do is they change the layout. They change it into a bed and breakfast. They change it into an assisted living facility. They change it into a special needs house. So you certainly can change the property. But when you do that, you're going to lose two big things with single-family homes. Liquidity and appreciation. Single-family homes are the most liquid, meaning they're the easiest to sell properties in real estate. So by keeping the home, a single-family home, you know, a 4-2, a 3-2, 
what's going to happen is you're going to provide some safety in your investment portfolio that if you ever had to sell, if you ever had to get out, you could quickly because the house is more liquid when it is a house and not when you've changed it into some assisted living facility. Number two is appreciation. Houses tend to appreciate faster than any other real estate class. And the reason why is because it's tied to owner-occupant supply and demand. People wanting houses, people wanting to live in a certain area. And that is typically a bigger swing, a faster movement than net operating income called NOI. And that's how most commercial real estate is valued when there's rental uh, involved. And NOI doesn't move that fast. NOI is not nearly as uh, as uh, fluctuating as the typical owner-occupant. So for liquidity and appreciation purposes, let's keep the property a single-family home. Let's not change that. Instead, let's use some creativity. All right, so here are three ways to turn a house into a cash-flowing machine. Number one, student housing. Okay, we're going to leave it a single-family home, but if the property is near a college, and you wouldn't believe how many colleges are out there, there's more than you think. If you look closely enough, you'll see them. You turn into a student housing whereby you're renting the property from an advertising standpoint by the room. So maybe it's a four-bedroom. You can you can rent it for $500 a room. Now, you may have to furnish it. That's okay, though, because you can go to Goodwill, go to one of those secondhand stores and get some of the less expensive furniture. Um, but furthermore, because it's a student housing situation, you typically can get the parents to co-sign. So here's where things get exciting. Number one, when the parents co-sign, you're going to get your rent money each month. Number two, if they trash the property, if the occupants, these students, throw these huge parties and and destroy the place, you can go sue the parents. You're going to get your money. So number one is you're going to get your money. You're virtually guaranteed, which it's not always the case with single families, right? And then number two, if you're renting by the room in in the way you advertise, because you still just use one actual lease in most cases, you can usually get quite a bit more money than market rent. So you might be able to get upwards of $2,000 a month on what would normally rent for, say, 1000 And plus, you may have to throw some some free Wi-Fi in there as well. But the point is you can increase your rental rate above the normal market rate by going student housing. All right, so that's number one. Number two is as a vacation rental. Now, if the property is located in a vacation destination location, this can be a huge moneymaker. I have several vacation rentals. I love them. And they do wonders for cash flow because you're renting by the night. And by the night really adds up when you start adding up by the month, right? So if you're renting, uh, let's say, two-thirds of a month, by the night, you can make an absolute killing. Now, yes, there are a few extra expenses. You're having to pay utilities. That includes water, electric, if there's gas, and then you got cable TV, you've got internet. So you got some expenses there. But the increase from, let's say it's $1,000 a month as your normal rental rate to a normal tenant, on a vacation rental, you might be able to get upwards of 4000 in gross rent. Now, yes, you have to take some of that money back because you have to pay for utilities, but still, the increase is huge. Another big expense is you've got to put in some decent furniture because that is going to be part of the overall vacation rental game is you've got to make sure that you have nice enough property, furniture, little household items that people give you good reviews. But again, the numbers are so huge, it could be all worth it and then some. And as far as the management and whatnot, I have a great uh, training on this as well. But you can do this through VRBO, through HomeAway. You don't need to uh, hire some expensive managing firm to take 20, 30, 40% of the overall revenue. Okay, so number two is vacation rental. Love those. But you know what? The first two I've covered, you may not, you may not have a house near a college. You may not have a house in a vacation destination. What do you do then? Number three, rent to own. The majority of rentals 
those people probably really want to be a homeowner, but they just can't be. With a rent-to-own, you're offering to rent them the home and give them the option to purchase. It's two documents. you got a lease. There's one document, and the second document is an option to purchase uh, agreement. And you can charge for that option. And typically, we charge an upfront fee, somewhere between five, six, ten thousand dollars up front. Now they lock in their price at the moment they move in, and I usually uh, put the price at the highest that'll appraise for it the day they move in. Now you might be saying, "Well, wait a minute, Phil. I mean, I want to own rental property. I don't want to sell these things. I want to own these things long term." Hold on, yeah, listen carefully. The majority of people that are renters today but want to be homeowners, they're renters today because of credit, because of job, because of their inability to get a loan. And for the most part, people that think their financial situation is better, are going to be better tomorrow or the next day, they discover that it's not going to be because the, the foundation of why their finances are so bad today, those foundational problems aren't solved a year from now. It has a lot more to do with their habits and the way they think about money and the way that they handle themselves than it ever does with their just, quote, circumstances. So what ends up happening is a lot of the time when you do a rent to own and you get this non-refundable upfront option payment to give these people the option to buy within, let's say, two years, what usually happens is they're unable to two years from now. And what usually happens is life changes. They decide to move, they get married, they get divorced. Something happens in their life and they move on and they walk away from that upfront option payment. So right there, you get the benefit. To, if we go back to this net operating income we've been talking about. Okay, so yes, you may not be able to raise your rent all that much. But you get that big fat op- option payment up front. And that can be used as what ends up being positive cash flow in the end when they move out. Our statistics show something in the range of 90% of people don't actually uh, take advantage of the rent to own, even though they're given that opportunity to with the option to buy. So that upfront option payment almost always becomes income. And then also what you can do in some states and in some uh, the way you structure it, you can give them what's called rent credits, where what you do is you say, okay, if you make your payments on time, then I'm going to give you a portion of your payment. We'll also reduce the overall price on our option uh, agreement. And then what you can do is you can say, all right, well, I will raise the rent by $200 a month from, say, $1,000 to $1,200, but then I'll give you a $300 a month rent credit. Now, that might sound crazy. Wait a minute. So we'll only raise it by, uh, by 200 but we're giving them a $300 a month rent credit? Aren't you going to lose money in the end? That goes back to this, this statistic we have here that 90% of the people don't buy. So in a way, you're kind of betting on them not buying by, by giving them a larger rent credit in exchange for a slight bump in the rental rate. Now, that's how you can get more rental income. But it gets better with a rent-to-own you don't have to pay for maintenance. You push all the maintenance on the rent-to-own tenant buyer because they're becoming the homeowner. So now when there's a clogged toilet, their problem. Now, there are certain Landlord-Tenant Act uh, issues that can supersede this, such as in some cases if the air conditioning system goes out and they uh, they get an attorney involved, <laughs> they might be able to prove that since it's a lease, you have to fix the AC. So it's not completely bulletproof of all maintenance issues, but it's pretty much. So... You, with with less maintenance costs, that that uh, that raises your overall net operating income. Uh, you can, in some cases, raise the rent above market rate in exchange for rent credits. So that raises your uh, your income as well, and then you get that down payment. So all of a sudden, what what used to be a five cap property becomes a ten cap 
uh, with a rent to own, it can be 15 cap or more with a uh, vacation rental and about a 10 cap with a student housing. So those three examples, student housing, vacation rental, and a rent to own, between those three creative techniques for marketing and positioning the property, you can turn a single family home, which highest and best use is as an owner-occupied property, you can turn it into a cash flowing machine. All right, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you really love what you're hearing, please check out my website, freedommentor.com. I have so many more wonderful trainings. I do have plenty of great trainings here on this podcast as well, but also I have videos back at my website. Grab one of my two books. My latest one is called Real Estate Investing Gone Bad, 21 True Stories of What Not to Do in Investing in Real Estate which goes right in with this theme of this podcast about investing in the real world. In the real world, things go bad too, and you need to know how to protect yourself from those problems. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you on the next episode.